Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The story that dominated the news cycle yesterday was right here in Hamilton when it was revealed that an arrest had been made in regards to the Musitano and Barberi murders that uh, police had told us were linked together some time ago. One suspect is in custody. The others have f- fled to Mexico, we were told. Nicole O'Reilly from the Hamilton Spectator has been following this story. She was there yesterday uh, and has filed a, a very comprehensive uh, story about exactly what's gone on and some of the background on it. And uh, we're pleased to welcome her to the program to talk a little bit about that. Nicole, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you. Were you, were you surprised that the, uh, the announcement was going to come yesterday after all the investigation that had gone on? You know, um, yes, I, you know, I was surprised. I knew that it was a, a lengthy investigation, that police had a lot of resources dedicated to it, but I also knew that, you know, there was a lack of family cooperation and that police were not certain on the motive still, so um, I, I was surprised by the arrest. Uh, and, and the timing, obviously. I mean, in light of the, the murder that occurred in, in Ancaster just the week before, but uh, the police were pretty clear that uh, they... They, well, I, well, you maybe explain it, because a lot of people are assuming that there's a tie in there, and I know sure. that that was brought up yesterday. Yeah, and that was actually a question that I asked during the news conference, because, uh, you know, just over a week ago, last Thursday, Albert Ivorone was shot um, in a very similar fashion to the way um, Angela Musitano was killed back in 2017. And uh, we know that there is, that um, Mr. Ivorone had uh, associates who were involved in organized crime. We know that he knew Mr. Musitano and other people involved in this case. So the, the natural question was, well, you know, did something in that murder stir up something that led to the arrest um, this week, but police were very clear that the timing was purely coincidental, that this had been in the works for, for some time, and that while it's possible that the two cases are related, that the arrests had nothing to do with Ivoroni's homicide. What was revealing, though, and as uh, Detective Sergeant Tom was answering your question yesterday, though, Nicole, was uh, when he indicated that Mr. Ivoroni actually knew two of the suspects. Well, I guess uh, two yeah. of the, uh, that, that was news to an awful lot of people, I'm sure raised a few eyebrows. It was, it was. So police had previously said that uh, Mr. Ivoroni was was associated with people involved in organized crime, but they were hesitant to specify who that was. Um, however, uh, uh, police revealed yesterday, yes, that he knew Angela Musitano, and he also knew two of the accused people and also um, a person of interest in the case. So certainly a lot of people with ties to that homicide. I, by the way, i got to ask you this, and I don't know if it came up during the Q&A yesterday as well. Uh, I, I know that Detective Sergeant Tom is also heading the investigation in the Ivoroni murder at the same time. Are they going to pursue that angle, that, that, that there is a linkage between the two? So um, that that is part of their investigation, yes. And I think um, um, Peter Tom is the lead investigator, the case manager for both cases, and that makes sense. Um, he has the expertise um, and the knowledge around what's going on with organized crime right now. Um, but And they have said clearly that that is part of their investigation, but they also don't want to have sort of tunnel vision, so to speak. Nicole, you've been covering these sorts of things for the longest time. How difficult is it for coordinated efforts between police departments? Because uh, as, as you've written in the past, it hasn't always been that way. Yeah, it hasn't always been that way, but I think they've been doing a much better job about that in, in recent years, and there's certain protocols that come into place. So um, in the Musitano homicide, because of the organized crime element, uh, element police, Hamilton police initially involved RCMP, which makes sense. Um, but then it was once they were able to, uh, through surveillance images, where they were able to clearly establish that the shooter was the same shooter as in the Mila Barberi homicide in New York region, that's when they brought in the big joint task force. And uh, there's an inspector from Toronto who, over, who oversaw it, and that made um, a much more coordinated effort around the province. And, and police spoke yesterday about you know coordinating with FBI, and Homeland Security and even speaking with Mexican police um, and having sort of a lot of cooperation there. 
I guess the worst case scenario of non-cooperation had to be uh, way back in the Bernardo Hamolka uh, investigation uh, when it was pretty clear that uh, the Toronto police were not talking to Niagara police at that time. Had they done that, they, they may have been able to act a lot faster than they did in this situation. Absolutely, yeah. That's why the case management system was established. Um, and so it, it does lead to better cooperation, among, especially when it comes to homicide investigations. Well, that was one of the revelations that you found out yesterday as well. That, that uh, And you just mentioned that they did have video of the barbaric shooting, but they didn't know who those people were. And that was information, I guess, that actually Hamilton Police supplied to them. Yeah, and that, that was new to me, too. It, it showed that Hamilton Police said that very early in the investigation, it was um, they identified these three people um, as potentially being involved, whereas York Police, uh, they had surveillance video and that homicide, and they didn't know who they had. And it was once police were able to establish, this looks like the same guy. This is the same car. The same black Honda was captured in, in surveillance video for both Um for both shootings, that they were able to bring that task force together and it helped York identify um, them as also being involved in the same homicide. Were you over the courtroom for the arraignment yesterday? I was not. My colleague was there. Um, it was a very quick. Um, it was a very quick first appearance, which is typical. Uh, yeah, and I, I, as uh, you were p- pointed out in the article, I know that Susan was there over there for a couple of minutes, and uh, yes. the, the, the quiet, and uh, there were family members that were there. Talk to us about the other two, though, where there are arrest warrants out for. Uh, we, you, you wrote in the piece today, uh, based on the information you got yesterday, that uh, there are probably in Mexico. Uh, but how they got there and when they got there is rather intriguing. It is interesting, and police were actually quite helpful. They provided a whole timeline for us. So um, we know that Michael Cudmore, um, who is one of the two who have warrants out for his arrest, and he is who um, I've learned is a suspected shooter in both of the homicides, the gunman who was captured on surveillance video. Um, So he fled to Mexico in May of 2017, very shortly after Angelo uh, Mustano's homicide, just weeks after. And he joined um, another associate there named Daniel Ranieri, who was a known organized crime figure in New York region who had fled in 2015, fleeing York Regional Police uh, after an investigation to organized crime there. And he met up with Daniel Ranieri who was going by the alias of Diego Diaz in Mexico. And so he, w- he was there for some time until basically uh, Daniel Ranieri showed up dead. He was, was found executed. And, um, and, and Michael Cudmore hasn't been seen since. And that was back in February... Um, sorry, March of, uh, of this year, and he hasn't, Michael Cudmore hasn't been seen since, and police are concerned for his safety and family has reported him missing. Um, they said that that was unusual, that he had been checking in regularly with family when he was in Mexico throughout that entire time, and basically at the same time that his associate was found murdered, um, he goes missing also. Um, the other suspect, um, Daniel Tomasetti, he went missing a little bit, or he fled to Mexico a little bit later. So this was back in January. Police held a big press conference where they announced the joint investigation, announcing that they were partnering with York Region, that they had tied the Musitano and the Barbary homicides together. It was just four days after that press conference that this other suspect, Daniel Tomasetti, that he fled to Mexico. At this time, police were watching him. He owned a, a travel agency and police said yesterday that they knew that he was going to Mexico. They were watching him. And so they made the strategic decision to let him go. Um, Presumably, they were hoping that he would lead them to Cudmore because Cudmore is the alleged shooter. Um, And and it's believed that uh, Daniel Tomasetti is still in Mexico. Mexican authorities there have said that he's not left the country. Um, And family, his family, who are notified of the investigation, um, have not reported him missing. 
Now, when when you talked to the police about this yesterday, Nicole, I was interested in the fact that they seem to have a pretty definite timeline as to who did what, uh, as you've just alluded to. Mm-hmm. Were they th- these guys were on their radar then at that time? Were they? They were so. Um, they were not on the radar before the homicide. They no, were exactly. on the radar after after uh, Angelo's murder. But yeah, at the time they were watching them. They had executed search warrants. Um, at two of the houses in February, they were watching them for some time, and um, and uh, yeah, they were they were very much aware when Daniel Tomasetti fled to Mexico and, and watched him do it. Uh, and and you've already explained uh, why they actually did that because I know a lot of people yesterday when they heard that information were questioning why didn't you just pick him up then as a as a person of interest but uh, clearly they they were actually I guess trying to find the other guy at the same time yeah they said they and 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 to be clear uh, they never they didn't specify that that's sort of me reading between the lines but what what police said is that it was it was done for an investigative reason and that they stand behind that decision and knowing that Michael Cudmore was in Mexico you know you could you could guess that they were probably hoping that he would lead. Um, that that Mr. Uh, Thomas said he would lead them to Mr. Cudmore. Nicole, did you get any sense about how cooperative the Mexican authorities are being here? Um, they did say that they they are cooperative, um, but we didn't. It, they didn't initially list them as, as um, sort of one of the agencies that they were working with very closely. But they did say that they have been cooperative and they have uh, Mexican authorities have helped uh, in the confirmation of uh, Daniel Ranieri's death and also in um, letting authorities here know that uh, that neither Cudmore or Thomas said he have left the country. Uh, and do they have eyes on him, do you know, down there? I don't know that. you, you got to wonder, because obviously that's going to be one of the key elements to this. Uh, and, and the warrants that have been issued, those are international warrants, are they? So no, the uh, warrants that were issued were Canada-wide warrants, okay. but they were seeking to have them authorized to become international warrants, and then they would be in contact with Interpol, at which point um, they would perhaps be able to go to, to Mexico and, and get at least Tomasetti. One of the other points that they were quite clear on, and, and that you put in your piece here today, Nicole, on the spec, is uh, uh, these were not the masterminds. I mean, uh, d- 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 no. uh, Peter Tom was pretty clear about that. How far up the ladder is this investigation going to go? Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. I think they said they they know they they believe they know who um, who the mastermind was, but they did not. The police did not want to name who that was. Clearly, these in- individuals were involved in the planning of the murders. They're accused of uh, being involved in a really extensive surveillance surveillance of, of family, friends. Like they were, it was a very sophisticated planning process, very organized planning process. And Cudmore is is alleged to be the shooter, but they're not. Yeah, they're not the masterminds, and and who the mastermind is, or or who the masterminds are, please have not revealed. And I know that they're very very cautious about that. They didn't even want to speculate about that. But they, I, I got the sense in the, in the the article that you wrote today that they got a pretty good idea who they're looking for. They do, yes. It's just a matter of obviously building a case, I suppose, which is going to be somewhat problematic. Uh, we need no cooperation yet, especially yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. Uh, what about the mo for the the Ivoroni murder? Uh, because we've heard it, it seemed to be almost the same sort of thing that the, there was a surveillance apparently on the house, uh, the, the the shooting that happened right in the the, the driveway as as the Musitano did. Uh, obviously, two of these guys were in Mexico when that happened, so I guess you rule them out as possible suspects in that. Uh, the uh, individual that got arrested, Abdallah, I, I guess, was here. Uh, are they pursuing that angle? Uh, pursuing whether they were directly involved. Yeah. In, uh, I, I don't. That, that I didn't get that impression. But it's. It's. I think perhaps whether one was motivated by the other. Uh, a retaliation would be a question to ask. I think you can't ignore the fact that Averoni was killed in a, such a similar way. Um, you know, 
waiting for him to come home, parks his car, killed in the driveway, you know, wife and children inside, family having to call 911 after the horrific scene. It, it, it sends a message um, when it's so similar. I, I, I've just, uh, the project, by the way, that they talked about yesterday, uh, they, obviously these all get nicknames. This one's called Scopa. Yeah. Uh, project Scopa, which is, a, I, I'm told, an Italian card game. Yeah, uh, and, and br- the word broom. And the, and the word broom. So obviously that was something that was uh, the police had decided to call these. I have to have a name for all of these things, I suppose, for the files on these. Uh, is it ongoing? I mean, now that they've made these arrests, did you get the sense that there are Im- more arrests than imminent in this? I don't know that there's more arrests imminent, but the uh, investigation is certainly ongoing. You know, as I said, these guys are not the masterminds, and they certainly would be interested in, in, in going after whoever is higher up, but it's just a matter of building enough evidence to actually pursue charges. I guess the other question we all had to be concerned about right now, are there going to be any more attempts on people's lives at this stage? Uh, clearly, uh, from what uh, Detective Tom mentioned yesterday, that there's, a, there's a, a turf war or something going on here, clearly. There is, and, and people talk about a power vacuum um, and and different sides vying for power, and there's clearly been something going on in the organized crime um, underworld in Hamilton and in the GTA, not just with these two shootings. You know, uh, Pat Mustano's house was sprayed with bullets less than two months after Angelo's murder. Um, you've had bombings and, and other shootings in, in York region, so police are believe that there is something going on. They just can't say with certainty what that something is. You mentioned that the uh, family members of the, uh, the shooting victims uh, are not being cooperative with police. Uh, did you get the sense that there are other people that they can tap on for information about this? There are people that are information sources? So I know that initially um, in the Musitano homicide, at least, they had trouble getting really anyone who knew uh, Angelo to speak. Then there were some people involved in some of the businesses that he was with who did later speak with police, but no one in the family um, is cooperating, and that is somewhat standard um, when it comes to organized crime. It's it's, it's also um, true in the Ivorone case. Uh, great reporting on this and a great piece in The Spectator today uh, from uh, Nicole O'Reilly. Nicole, thanks so much for the time today. Greatly appreciated. Thanks for having me. Good talking to you. That's uh, uh, Nicole O'Reilly who covered the the media conference and, of course, has been covering those stories over the last couple of months. Uh, and much more to come, obviously, as the investigation, uh, as they called it, uh, Project Scopa, continues over the next few months. Uh, they do say there are bigger fish out there as to whether or not they can actually uh, cast the net that far. Only time will tell, I suppose. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So what is going on? Uh, yesterday during the press conference, of course, about the arrest and the uh, Musitano murder, uh, the uh, the police were quite clear in saying they did not really know exactly what the motive for the murder was, although they did go through great descriptions as to how it probably happened. Uh, getting information has got to be rather difficult. And how difficult is it going to be to find, first of all, the other two people who have warrants issued out for them right now, and how high up the ladder, organizational ladder and organized crime, does this go? Peter Edwards is a uh, reporter with the Toronto Star, of course, uh, author, executive producer, and consultant for the TV series Bad Blood. He's uh, written a number of different books about organized crime over the last number of years, and uh, always great reads and uh, very insightful. And uh, we wanted to get him in uh, to give his take on that. Peter, thanks for coming on today. Really appreciate the time. Oh, no, thanks for having me on. I enjoy it. Peter, from the uh, what you heard yesterday, from the media conference yesterday here in Hamilton with, uh, with Hamilton Police and the Joint Force, uh, were you surprised by, by what they re- revealed yesterday, or is, is this a very typical of a, a way something like this would actually occur? I'm not really surprised, but, but fascinated. Um, the interesting part for me is the um, are there weren't against two Canadians um, who went to Mexico and haven't been heard from in quite a while, and so 
did they turn on someone and go into hiding, or have they been killed along with a, um, a third Canadian who was murdered down there? Uh, that's kind of the thing I'm wondering about right now. Well, let's ask about that. I mean, you know, they, they mentioned about how difficult it is to get information. Let me ask you, as you researched all of the material that you've done over the years on, on the Rizzuto family and, of course, here at Hamilton and Toronto and uh, Southern Ontario crime families, uh, how, I, I don't want you to reveal sources, but how do you get information? Are, are there people that are willing to talk off the record as long as they're not identified? Uh, yeah, there, there, are, there always are. If someone who wants to talk, a lot of it is, um, will you burn them? Um, so a lot of people, too, they want, they, they're curious about your take on something, or they're curious about, um, did I just see what I think I saw? Um, you know, it's almost like we're all looking at an elephant through a little hole in the fence and we were not quite sure what went by like we know it was something big there are a lot of grudges in um in organized crime too so a lot of people um i had a guy phone me last night who said that i'm making daniel ranieri look smarter than he is and that he and so this is a guy who would know ranieri pretty well but he almost it's almost like an athlete saying another athlete is overpraised you know that he's not as good as you've been hyping him up to be and so uh, this guy was trying to make the point that ranieri was um a big deal in organized crime, but that he wasn't a thinker. You know, he was a, a doer. That he was um, some like an attack dog, not a uh, not a guy who's bound for the executive chair. Ranieri, uh, just for the sake of our listeners, was the uh, individual that fled uh, to Mexico uh, and was found uh, well bound and shot. So we assume that, that that's also a murder. And uh, yeah, and he was living under an assumed, assumed name. So that gets interesting is who set up his ID up here. There's one guy who uh, was convicted about a year and a half ago who was giving a lot of these people their identification, and so it could have been him, but was it someone else? Um, some of them have really, really good sets of identification, which um, you know raises a whole bunch of questions about government security, but some of them have really, really good second identities. Who are these people within the organization? I mean, you know, and again, I, I know police do this, and I know as, as you uh, go through your research when you're writing a book, Peter, that's it's you almost like develop an organizational chart as to who is doing what and who is responsible to and who answers to whom here. Uh, and, and again, I don't want to get into the movie uh, gangland uh, parlance necessarily, but are these just soldiers? Are they people for hire, or are they actually uh, members of, of these organizations? Um, if this was police, these would be... Um Sergeants and inspectors. I mean, these are these are pretty high up people. The Vito Rizzuto was a huge deal. Like he died five years ago, but he was huge. And he, if there was a pyramid, he was at the very top. Since then, there hasn't been anyone remotely close to that level. And so, there, if someone goes down to Mexico to talk to a cartel, they're not talking from a real point of power. They're trying to um, almost invent themselves and you know suss everything out and figure how to handle it. They, they're not going in with clout like Rizzuto would have had. And um, Things have just changed a lot in the last five years where I don't think we'll see anyone like that again. And so we've got kind of a vacuum, and, and some um, people in Montreal have been freshly released from prison, and they're back um, asserting themselves. Some bikers have um, have upped their game, and um, some people are back in Buffalo who uh, that had been written off as a wasteland, and I think it's something again. And so there's just a whole bunch of different factors. And the odd thing is the criminals themselves don't know. I mean, there's no score chart or um, you know you don't have to file your profits and so um, there, there's a lot of people wondering exactly what and sometimes someone will get killed and there'll be five different reasons you know like like you you get the parade going but everybody's marching for a different reason 
while when when a situation is like uh, occurring such as you've just described and there's a, a power vacuum obviously somebody wants to come in and fill that uh d- when when they're looking at a territory and let's let's talk about hamilton in this area here because obviously the murders occurred here uh do they na- naturally assume that they have to do this by with muscle that they have to move in and do this sort of thing or are there there any negotiations that occur um you can negotiate a bit but if you don't have muscle people don't pay their bills and so um if you're in gambling, you it's not an honor system. Like if if you don't have the threat, and Ranieri was a threat. Like the uh, about 20 minutes ago, I was talking to someone who knew him, and he he said, yeah, he wasn't a bright guy, but but he was bright enough, and he was scary, and so he's the guy you you want. Like you want to be able to point to him and say, don't make me sick this guy on you. One one thing we've got to play right now too that's interesting is the the price of cocaine is going up a bit, and so that attracts new players like people who. If people sniff the opportunity and start to move in. At the same time, the Mexican cartels are, um, they have more people on the ground in Canada, and so they have a lot more control over the situation. So you have a lot of different things that are that are being played out. And and for almost all of them, it's, it's a new thing. Like, it's new for Mexico. It's new for uh, the guys up here dealing with, with the, the people from um, down south. So everybody is having to reinvent themselves right now. So is this all about narcotics then, in, in your mind? Um, I think narcotics are at the top, and gambling, gambling is fueling um, some of it, but it's, um, it's drug money going into gambling, and so it all kind of works together. Some of the people, too, who don't want to compete on the top tier where um, narcotics is, is very dangerous, and um, a lot of players, you might try to get into gambling on a, on a secondary level. Um, you, the same people come into it, though, you know, like the... Um, there, there is no one safe place. Well, let me ask you about safe places. It's uh, more than coincidental, obviously, that uh, the the individual you were just talking about, plus the other two that have warrants issued for them, uh, fled to Mexico. Is is that considered a safe haven, or is that just because that's where they do business? See, that's a great question, and it used to be. Like, this was um, in the 70s, definitely, in the 60s, um, absolutely. Now, not so much. And now... Um, I'm working with this um, journalist from Juarez who um, really, really knows his stuff, and and he's been explaining that there are more than a dozen cartels down there, and that they're they're constantly warring with each other, and so the politics is there, and the um, trying to sort out what's safe and what isn't is, is extremely complicated, and so um, you hook up with one, but then then that means you've got other ones who might be pressuring you as well. Um, it's it's not an easy thing to do. So, in other words, if you decide I'm going to do business with this cartel, you all of a sudden become an enemy of the other cartels. Yeah, and you might be in a city like, say, if you're in Cancun, that might be controlled by one cartel, but then three other cartels form an alliance and push out the first cartel. Now they want you to deal with them, but then the first cartel is very offended that you've written them off, and so now you've got four different groups and you're trying to measure them, and they, they, they're all scary to you. We're obviously speculating at this stage, but I mean, there are two warrants issued here right now. They're Canada-wide warrants at this stage, and and as we determined yesterday, apparently uh, the police are seeking to make these international warrants. What does that do? What what kicks in then? Uh, It's interesting, but I mean, these guys went to Mexico and didn't come back. Um, So, I mean, the answer is is down there. Um, I, I think one thing they did float out yesterday was that anyone who's helping them Anyone who's provided any assistance to them can be charged with accessory after the fact in murder. And so 
I think they're reminding people up here who know something that um, uh, it's a good time to step forward. If there's an international warrant issued, and that seems as if it's going to happen sooner than later, uh, does that allow Mexican authorities, for instance, to go seek out these two individuals? Yeah, I think they are seeking them out now, but I think there's a very good chance that they're dead. Um, like that's something Louise and I are looking at is that, um, I mean, the guy they were working with, um, you know, bound and executed, and these were people who would have been considered very close to him. And so uh, it, they'd be very fortunate if, they, um, if they're still walking around. Well, that's obviously one of the areas of speculation. Uh, the, one of the individuals, uh, Michael Cudmore, uh, they say was in touch with uh, with folks up here until that other individual was uh, was executed, and had, they haven't heard from him since. So that sounds rather suspicious. Uh, the other individual, uh, Daniel Tomasetti, uh, we don't know much about, or whether or not he's been in contact with anybody. But clearly, he's still within uh, the Mexican uh, uh, borders. So that you know, but uh, you suggest that he might have uh, met the same fate. Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's definitely a strong possibility. I mean, if they're considered part of a group. They absolutely wanted to get rid of Ranieri, and so, um, I mean, that wasn't a spontaneous thing. And so if they, they were planning, you know, they, it, it sounds kind of flippant, but some the, down there murder isn't that, um, that shocking of a thing. And so if you're not sure whether to kill someone or not, um, it's almost erring on the side of caution to kill the other guy, too. If, in fact, that happened, uh, it was, is it done by the cartels themselves, or is it done by people from up here? Um, see, that's, that's something I'm really, really curious about. Um, my guess is the cartels, but I'm not sure. And, and we're trying to find out the, um, the type, type of weapon used. Um, where Louise has really helped me a lot is that when you look at the caliber of the gun and um, the type of gun, sometimes it points to, to who the killer is. And, and down there, they... Um, there's a type of machine gun with a curved magazine that's very popular, and so um, if, they, if he was shot with that, then it really points to someone with a military background who's working for a cartel. Peter, I got to ask you uh, a, a question that came up yesterday at the, at the press conference at the police headquarters here, uh, and that's about who else is involved in this. And 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 as you heard yesterday, uh, Sergeant Detective Sergeant Tom was quite clear to say, "Look, at these guys pr- carried this out in their opinion, but they're not the ones that organized this or ordered this. That's further up the ladder." Uh, how do you track that? I, we also got the sense, obviously, from the way that he was describing it, as if they got a pretty good idea who it might be. Uh, how do police go about actually doing that and trying to prove that and, and, and move up that, that organizational ladder that you talked about? Sometimes they have to wait, and if you have a group of people who did something, then um, sometimes it's the first one to go to police who, who cuts the deal, and then the other ones have to react to that deal. And so, um, uh I mean, something's cracked for them to get as far as they did yesterday, and uh, the police can wait. You know, like they can kind of wait it out and let things play out a little more. The the level of paranoia among some of the bad guys will be pretty high right now. Once a bad guy said to me, I'm helping being chased by paranoids, and he was joking, but that was his world. You know, when naturally paranoid people are starting to turn on each other, it's not very pleasant, and that's when sometimes people run to police. Will those people, well, they'll, they'll call you from time to time, obviously, because they know what you do in your background, and they will confide in you. Would they actually call police and do the same thing? Uh, some of them might if they think that if you were the driver and you thought it was surveillance and then a guy whips out a gun and shoots someone, or if um, 
uh, you shot a woman in the driver's seat, but you thought the guy was going to be in the driver's seat, and you thought she was going to be in the passenger seat, and you didn't really, you meant to kill, but not her, and you're feeling awful about that. So people, there, there'd be a lot of emotions at play. There'd be um, girlfriends, ex-girlfriends, mothers, sisters, people who aren't really a part of it, but are um, kind of spectators to some of it. Um, these would all be valuable people, too. Those that ordered this, those that organized this whole thing, are they local, in your opinion? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So this is not coming from Montreal or, or Buffalo or, or wherever. This is this is being done within the confines of southern Ontario, around the, the uh-huh. 905, 416 areas. Um, I think it's 905 with a, with a Buffalo and Montreal influence. So I don't think there's a real vacuum, and I think if you're... If you're a big deal, you um, you can reach out. Like you can, um, uh, and you want to know, just bringing things in or having markets or controlling competition. You you, you can't just um, just stay in one narrow little area. And so I think it's nine oh five, but I think it's influenced by other things. You mentioned Montreal and Buffalo again uh, as, as influences here. Uh, anybody that's carrying out this sort of thing and this business, and and obviously it is responsible for these murders. Uh, do they need to get permission from the higher-ups to be able to do that? Uh, that's, they're supposed to, although if you kill someone, then obviously they have to deal with what you've done. Yeah, like, it's not... Um, um, I, I think a lot of times someone wants to um, uh, get permission beforehand, but, but then you almost get that kid thing about, um, you know, ask for forgiveness, not from permission, or else just let them react to what you've done. I mean, if you bump off the top people, then you're the top person now, and they have to react to you. You mentioned, it's interesting, I've talked to you for many years now, different books come out, and and some of these things that were occurring here in our own backyard in some of these cases, Peter, Uh, and you mentioned that you're getting a lot of phone calls. Is that typical after an event like this? Yeah, and it's it's kind of odd because it's hard for me to semi-retire because if you either get a whole bunch or you, or it's either running, the tap's really running or else it's, um, it's dry. And so, um, um, yeah, and with, with social media, that really pushes it up too because people don't have to say where they are. Like a guy yesterday was very nervous about me knowing who he was, but he really knew his stuff and um, um, he can point me places and so I don't care all that much who he is anyway. But people can can stay in touch with you but but not give away too much about themselves i had one guy who he went through i think three different identities before i actually knew who he was because he he'd keep giving me a name that's closer to him and i, I you know i didn't particularly care who he was i just wanted to know what he knew do they trust you uh yeah like you, there's some stuff where you just don't um you don't burn people and you make it clear why you're talking and i mean i'm not going to cover up anyone's crime and i'm not um fighting anyone's war, but I, I do want to do an accurate job. Uh, it's it's interesting, that that's sort of a relationship uh, between these, these informants. When, when they call, is it is it to point the finger at somebody else, or is it to say, hey, it wasn't me? Uh, sometimes they just want to vent. I mean, it's bizarre, but they've got so many layers of lies in their lives. They need someone, it's almost, they, they need someone they can just, just say, this is what really happened. And the guy yesterday, he he wanted to say, yeah, he's a bad guy, but when you call him Peter Rizzuto's Ontario person, you're you're making him more than what he was. And it's almost um, uh, it's almost like he um, he's trying to get the record sort of straight in his mind. I talked to someone else who said 
no, he's wrong. I think he was that big of a deal. And so you have, it's almost like two people disagreeing on, on um, something subjective like sports. But it's interesting, and they, they, they're lying to their mothers, their fathers, their brothers, their wives, their, their buddies, and they, sometimes they just need someone they can, they can actually let it go with. I'm anticipating you're going to get more phone calls over the next few days as this investigation continues. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of odd because they're coming from different area codes, too. So it's, it gets, um, I'm, I'm glad the paper pays my cell phone bill. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, listen, I really appreciate your uh, your input into this. Uh, it's uh, obviously very concerning to a lot of us as to what's going on. and still more questions than answers at this stage. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this further down the road, too. But thanks for this today. Oh, thanks a lot, Bill. I appreciate it. Take care. Peter Edwards, uh, great writer, of course, uh, for the Toronto Star. Uh, and, of course, uh, one of the consultants and producer of the uh, TV series Bad Blood that I'm sure you watch. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, earlier this morning in Toronto at the Economic Club, uh, Ontario Finance Minister Vic Fideli uh, delivered the bad news. You know that uh, just after the uh, Ford government took power, they said they were going to hire some independent folks to look at the books. And uh, he delivered the message yesterday. And uh, as uh, people were chowing down on their granola and their muffins, they got some uh, rather... Ugly news. Joining us to talk about this, Alan Carter, anchor of uh, Global News at 536, and of course, uh, also the host of Focus Ontario, which is seen uh, right through the weekend, of course, on Saturday and Sunday on Global. Alan, great to have you with us again. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Bill. Uh, by the way, uh, we're going to take water down, okay? Uh, listen, uh, you, you're a, a Burling, former Bur- you're from Burlington, so I mean, you, you, Burlington. you've got a stake in this, don't you? Yeah, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not unbiased at all. I, I'm, I'm a Burlingtonian, and we're taking water down, and we might come for Flamborough too. So be careful. Well, listen, you, you heard on the news today that Cambridge now, a Cambridge councilor's written. He said he wants part of Flamborough to move up, or all of Flamborough to move up to Cambridge. Listen, by the time we finish this discussion here this afternoon, we may be part of St. Catharines. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> this, this city's breaking up as I'm sitting here, Alan. You know, I grew up in Burlington, so I have a, a natural animosity to Hamilton. Ah, there uh, you go. There you, you know, go. When you grow up in Burlington, you resent people from Oakville, and you fear people from Hamilton. <laughs> That's kind of the way it works. <laughs> we, we better move on before we both get in trouble here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's talk about this. By the way, in all the years you've been covering Queen's Park and provincial politics, has a government ever won an election and said, you know, we looked at the books, and the other guys did a pretty good job? Yeah. Has that ever happened at all? Uh, surprise, surprise. The cupboard's bare, Bill. Yeah. Who, who could have guessed? Who knew? Who knew? What, what's weird about this one, Bill, though, is, I mean, I think we all knew that. And we all knew that that they were going to give us some self some political cover by saying, well, the cupboard is bare. I think that I am a little bit surprised, however, that what's really happened here is that the conservatives have decided to adopt Bonnie Lissick, the Auditor General's numbers. So just to give you a bit of a background on this, because it's wicked complicated and super wicked boring, because it's an accounting fight is really what it is. And you've heard about this over for the last year now. The Auditor General says that pension funds, the pension assets that are uh, held by Ontario and co-sponsored by the government, you know, they put money into it, Mm -hmm. the government has long, for, for decades and decades, counted that on the plus side of the balance sheet. Well, the auditor came in, Bonnie Lissick, after a year or so into her tenure and said, you know what, I don't think that's right. I think that you should change that. And by the way, that means your deficit is now, you know, in the, in the range of $20 billion higher. And the government said, no, absolutely not, under the liberals. And they went and got independent uh, 
you know, experts to back up their advice, and then there was, you know, accountants fighting on either side. And what has happened here is that the conservatives have come in and said, no, we're, we believe, Bonnie, we're going to take that $20 billion off the, you know, right off the books, and that's why we're going to end up now with a $15 billion deficit. But, and it's to their political advantage, because, I mean, the larger that deficit looks, the, the more they can say to these, you know, hey, this wind government really, really screwed it up. Well, and you heard that from Fidelity today, you yeah. know, some of the things that he said, you know, this is bad news, but at least we have the truth, and this is going to require, uh, you know, he didn't say sacrifice, but it, it's going to require, um, you know, everybody to pitch in, which is a way of saying, we're going to cut right across the board to try and eliminate this deficit. Well, and, and one follows the other, doesn't it? I mean, every time a government wants to go into an austerity mode, they always have to justify it by saying, look, at this is bigger than we thought. I mean, Greg Sobera did it when the McGinney people took over. Ernie Eves did it when uh, Mike Harris took over. It's, uh, it's, it's almost a tradition at Queen's Park, isn't it? It is, and you know what? The liberals tried to stop that. They brought in um, this law or, or, or this regulation that says that the auditor has to sign off on the finances before you go to an election so that you can't have this sort of situation. The problem is that that, after, that was fine for, you know, the 2011 election. It was fine in the 2014 election. But under Bonnie Lissick, now in 27, or 2018, pardon me, you know, she wouldn't sign off on it because she said, no, you, you, you're counting $20 billion where you shouldn't. And so... So even though that we were trying to protect ourselves from this sort of thing happening in the future, it still happens. i got to ask you, long term, uh, their, their decision to accept Bonnie Lissick's numbers here, is that going to come back and bite them? I mean, as they try to wrestle with it? Because at some point they're going to have to own the budget and the deficit. Well, yeah, I, it, it is a, a, a concern. If, if they take Bonnie's numbers, which they are, then you're looking at a $15 billion budget. Then you're looking at massive cuts to try and get the balance to balance the books. And that $15 billion de- deficit, that doesn't even include any of the promises, any of the campaign promises that Ford made, whether it's money for mental health, whether it's, you know, how are we going to cut down the, 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 the amount for hydro or whatever. Like, how, where's he going to get money to, to do the things that he said he's going to do? I think all of it is up in the air now. When's the budget come down? Because obviously one follows the other here. I mean, I, this is—I I know they've started working on the numbers already, but and and they needed this to come out first of all to justify this. But I, I get the feeling that we're going to get a, a shock when he get, rises in the house. It's not what they're going to spend it on; it's what they're not going to spend it on. I guess that's really going to be of concern now. Yeah, and that's—we've got some months to go. That's not till the spring that we get the budget. The annual budget comes out usually in March. Sometimes it can it can move into April a little bit. Um, and, and sometimes even be later. But what you're going to, so this is the first, um, this is where they had Gordon Campbell look at the numbers overall. They're also still doing a line-by-line audit, uh, which is still ongoing. This is sort of the overview, which Fidelity released today. And so as they go through line-by-line, I think we're going to find out, they'll start, they'll start, you know, hinting at what, where the cuts are going to be. But you're right, it is going to be a cold winter in provincial politics. 
Does this uh, slow down uh, some of the announcements that uh, that Doug Ford has already made about I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that? Uh, Obviously, they they knew that it was going to be an ugly number when they started doing this, and and this obviously verifies that for them. But at the same time, they had to know that this was coming, and yet they they still, as you mentioned, continued to say, hey, we're going to get this for you. Mental health money, we can do that. Money for that, yeah, we can do that too. Uh, I would think think that's got to slow down. Well, yeah, you would you would think, and 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 perhaps we are going to see a, a speech from the premier perhaps next week that says, okay, you know, we didn't see this. The liberals of, you know, as the the premier said, the liberals didn't just cook the books; they were frying them. Um, and as a result, we have to adjust a whole bunch of things. That is a real po- strong possibility. Where do we go here on policy, though, Alan, with the, with this announcement and with this revelation about where we are from a financial standpoint right now? Uh, and you mentioned a couple of the things that I think a lot of people were looking for, like hydro rates uh, being one of them, that, hey, he's going to lower those, the price of gasoline, but I guess that's supposed to happen at some point in the future, but that's going to mean less revenue, too. Do they have to do an about turn on some of these things? Um, it's. I don't think they have any big spending numbers on their promises that they're going to have to above face on the gas they're already taking credit for the uh, dip in gas prices that we've seen this week saying that that is the result of uh, the cancellation of cap and trade so the government is uh, taking credit for that what what i find interesting is that next week you know something will happen in saudi and gas prices will go right back up again and uh, you know what was that all for so that's one thing um but I think the government is really just right now laying down this track, this messaging. We're in big trouble here. The liberals have screwed us over. Uh, therefore, we've got to do all of these painful things. And, and it's, the, it's an old story, as you know, Bill. In the first two years of your mandate, that's where you put your pain. Yeah, exactly. And so that's what they'll do. Well, and, you know, Mike Harris, uh, it, I guess, set the standard for that. I mean, you know, the first two years of his mandate, that's when he went into, well, f- uh, first of all, amalgamations. Uh, how did that go for him? Uh, a, a whole new system, of course, of calculating property taxes, uh, current value assessment, which screwed everybody around, too. But uh, people tended to forget about that after two years, and they reelected him. Yes. Uh, yeah, they did, um, because, you know, two, two years into it, he was, you know, switched it up, and it wasn't quite as... Um, you know, quite as harsh in terms of the cutbacks. But here's the thing that I I, I think is that, uh, you know, Ontarians are pretty much, by and large, middle of the road, don't like a lot of controversy. And if we see what we saw at Queen's Park this week with, you know, over, you know, midnight sittings and this madness over the notwithstanding clause, I mean, what was that all about? All You know, now we don't have to use it, but yet, he, the premier expended a lot of political capital on it. I think a lot of people uh, support the premier, what he's doing. I, I don't think that there's, even though polling is saying that about 50-50 are um, opposed uh, and in favor of using the notwithstanding clause. You know, the thing is, is that people are going to get tired if it, every time they turn on the TV there's another protest or there's some other kind of circus-like thing going on. Ontarians don't like that kind of thing. Well, you're going to get another one this afternoon. Uh, st- I mean, students are there to, to protest the sex ed curriculum. Uh, some of them are going to show up at Queen's Park, I guess. Others are doing it in different neighborhoods. But you're right, there's a consistency to that. You know, back to Harris for a second, though, Alan. One of the things that he did, I think quite masterfully, 
uh, when he introduced those those things about amalgamation and about current value assessment, uh, was he basically shoved the blame onto the municipalities and said, look at if you guys you know were better at, at handling your own budgets, this wouldn't have any impact on those poor taxpayers after all. Uh, and you got to wonder if that's a tool in, in you know that Vic Fidelity is going to try to use here as well. That that well the onus is going to be on the municipalities here. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that they might download or try to, you know, offset other, you know, move the, you know, expenses. I mean, that's what Harris did, right, is he, he took a whole bunch of stuff off the provincial books and just shoved it right down on the municipalities and said, look, my books are great. Your books are terrible. Um, so I, I, I don't know how much there, – there's been some changes with when the liberals were last – their last budget, they uploaded a whole bunch of things and took a whole bunch of costs away from the municipalities. I think you might see those coming back. What are the concerns uh, in Toronto? Because I know there are some here at Hamilton about capital projects and some of the commitments that that uh, Mr. Ford had made during the campaign, especially when it comes to things like public transit. Uh, is is this the precursor for him to say, well, maybe not so fast, let's hold off on that? That's tough to say. I think we have to wait to find out what the finance minister is planning in terms of return to balance. So, you know... This is all carefully planned out in terms of the messaging. This is what governments do. They don't tell you everything all at once. They let us chew it over on the radio bit by bit, morsel by morsel, and then then you move forward. So Fidelity's not saying how quickly he's going to move back to balance. So, yeah, all right, we got a $15 billion deficit, fine. Um, well, I don't think anybody thinks that's fine, but nevertheless, okay, 15 How many years until we get to zero. I think that probably what he'll say is we'll aim to have the books balanced by the end of our mandate, which gives them some wiggle room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, other governments, well, the deficit hasn't been as large with other governments. I think I think the McGinney government did it within two years or something like that, but I think they were only dealing with about three at that point, uh, not the 15 that Fidelity was talking about this morning. But it's well, we a, were up to 20 at one point. Yeah. We were over 20 at one during the, the recession, and then it it you know then it was a sort of a mantra of the Win and McGinty liberals that by 2017 2018 that they would balance the books and they claim they did today Fidelity said no no that that was a lie. What to, now the other aspect of this obviously is some of the other program cuts that he's talked about. Uh, is is that an apples and oranges comparison? For instance, you know they're introducing legislation now to to officially kill the Green Energy Act. Uh, but that doesn't count on the books here. That's not part of the deficit. That's not projected money. That's uh, that's a whole different thing, isn't it? Yeah, there's no money involved with that. That doesn't change. Anything. It's just not, that's just money they're not going to spend. Yeah, and that green energy announcement was. I mean, they basically came in and canceled something that has been canceled for years, even though it still exists on the books. You know, the, the Green Energy Act was brought in in 2009 by McGinty. In 2013, when uh, Wynne came in, she changed a ton of stuff, like the feed-in tariff, the, uh, the siting rules under the previous uh, energy minister. They changed a whole bunch of stuff. So, you know, the, the conservatives can talk about, well, you know, uh, the... the the Green Energy Act is terrible, all of these things. Well, that's kind of in the past. It, it wasn't really like... It was more of a show piece yesterday, that cancellation. 
Yeah, because there's been a freeze on that for the longest time. Where where do they go from now? I got about a minute left here. I mean, you mentioned the budget's not going to be till springtime, so it's going to it's going to be a long cold winter here. I'm wondering exactly what we're going to do with the numbers here and how this government's actually going to uh, start to do business when they get back into the legislature. Because usually, uh, when you get bad news like this, there's usually a reaction from the government to say, "Well, we're going to have to do this." It, it, are you expecting something like that? And not necessarily a budget, but at least some sort of a fiscal readjust. Yeah, I am. I think that now that we have this out there, this number out there, you're going to start seeing some kind of indication from the government of, you know, where they're going to place their priorities. And like we talked about, I think fairly in, in fairly short order, you're going to he- hear from the premier, you know, talking about okay, what does this really mean? You know, you sure he'll castigate the liberals and you know say every nasty thing in the book, which is by the way. Can somebody tell the Ford government that they won the election? Can somebody <laughs> mention to them that they already won? Because it sounds like sometimes that they don't know. They haven't been able to figure out how to stop being the opposition. But nevertheless, he will outline where the changes in priorities are going to be because of the new deficit number. Alan Carter from Global TV, uh, 530 at 6, speaking to us to uh, Burlington Home in downtown Waterdown. Uh, thanks so much for the time today. <laughs> oh, quickly, i got 10 seconds left here. What's on Focus Ontario this week? Uh, Focus Ontario, we, uh, we're going to talk about notwithstanding and what in the world was all that about. And Martin Red Cohn from the uh, Toronto Star, the columnist, who uh, really raises the ire of the Ford government. He's on the show this weekend. He seems to, yeah. Looking forward to it. Thanks again, Alan. Have a great weekend. All right, thanks, Bill. Alan Carter from Global TV. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.